From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Bush administration has a new report out on climate change that's turning some heads on Capitol Hill and in the scientific community. And the question is, is this a significant shift in White House policy? Uh, I I wouldn't use the word significant, (laughs) but it's a shift. They are, for the first time, seriously acknowledging that we cannot account for the changes in climate that we are seeing solely from natural phenomena. And that admission could pose a dilemma for the administration. Do they try to deny the science, which is increasingly untenable, uh, or do they acknowledge the science but try to defend a do-nothing policy, which is also increasingly untenable? Also balance as bias, climate change in the newsroom. That's this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you want to try and understand just where the Bush administration stands on the problem of global warming these days, get ready to get confused. On the one hand, a recent Bush administration report cites evidence of global climate change and blames at least some of the warming on humans. But on the other hand, President Bush himself has said it's unclear how much of the warming is due to human activity, and more scientific research is needed before any policies might change. As Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports, all the confusion may be a sign that the White House stance on climate change is shifting. Our changing planet is a mostly mundane report. The White House Climate Change Science Program must supply Congress each year. This year's report, however, struck some as anything but mundane. The studies summarized in the report conclude global warming is reducing the planet's ice caps and affecting plants and animals. Two studies found the warmer temperatures of the past 50 years were likely caused by people burning fossil fuels and putting heat-trapping gases in the atmosphere. That's not groundbreaking science, but when it comes bearing the signatures of top Bush administration officials, it raises some eyebrows. Phil Clapp of the advocacy group National Environmental Trust says that's new for an administration that has downplayed evidence of the human influence on global warming. They are for the first time seriously acknowledging that we cannot account for the changes in climate that we are seeing solely from natural phenomenon. It is significant that the secretaries of commerce and energy have now actually signed a document that says to Congress human activity is seriously changing the world's climate. But the president's top scientist says that's not how he reads the report. I don't see the, the big deal here. That's White House science advisor John Marburger. Marburger denies that the report represents any departure for the administration and says President Bush has for years recognized that people play a role in climate change. We've always thought that that uh, uh, recent warming, uh, the surface warming of the Earth, uh, coming from, from data that are collected by a large number of stations and from a large number of sources, uh, was most likely due to human involvement, and to, to, to paraphrase the president's own words here, and uh, and this says, yeah, that's probably that's that's that seems to be right. Business groups and even some global warming activists agree with Marburger that the report is nothing new. So why did a routine report stand out to so many others who closely follow the climate change debate? 
Daniel Lashoff is science director for the Natural Resources Defense Council's Climate Center. In one sense, it's a routine report, but in the Bush administration, we found that there's nothing routine about putting out routine reports about global warming. For example, Lashoff says when Bush accepted a National Academy of Sciences report in 2001 on the human role in global warming, he also emphasized what we still did not know about its possible natural causes. Bush dismissed a 2002 Environmental Protection Agency report that blamed warming on human activity as coming, quote, from the bureaucracy. And Lashoff says the White House censored the global warming section of an EPA report last year. So what's new about our changing planet this year is that it does contain reasonable summaries of scientific literature on global warming that were not distorted by White House censors. So they're faced with a dilemma. Do they try to deny the science, which is increasingly untenable, uh, or do they acknowledge the science but try to defend a do-nothing policy, which is also increasingly untenable. White House science advisor Marburger insists there is no dilemma within the administration and no need for a change in policy. He rejects regulation in favor of Bush's call for voluntary greenhouse gas cuts and federal funding for technology to make those reductions possible. We are spending billions of dollars on these technologies, and if if we didn't think uh, that, that it was necessary, we wouldn't be doing it this administration has has put its money where its mouth is. Arizona Senator John McCain is watching this give and take with interest. His Climate Stewardship Act, co-sponsored by Connecticut Democrat Joe Lieberman, would regulate greenhouse gases like carbon dioxide for the first time. McCain is among the few Republicans pushing the administration to do more on climate change, and he sees the latest report as a sign that it might. Seems to be a bit of a shift. We're going to have a hearing on that, and we'd love to hear from them. And Joe and I will, Senator Lieberman and I, will be again forcing a, a vote as soon as we can. Yeah, so, so you do think that is a significant shift? Uh, I, th- I wouldn't use the word significant, <laughs> but it's a shift. Whether it's a shift that moves the administration any closer to action remains to be seen. McCain hopes to learn more when he hosts a Senate committee hearing on global warming this month. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Now, the first lesson in Journalism 101 is to get both sides of the story. Balancing viewpoints is supposed to prevent bias in reporting. It's also supposed to give your audience a full picture of the issue at hand. But when it comes to the science of global warming, two brothers say this rule should be reconsidered because balance in climate change coverage can actually mean bias, they say. Max and Jules Boykoff are co-authors of a study which appears in the recent issue of the journal Global Environmental Change. It's called Balance as Bias, Global Warming, and the U.S. Prestige Press. Jules Boykoff joins me now from Whitman College in the town that's so nice they named it twice, Walla Walla, Washington. Jules, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Balance as bias, uh, <laughs> i got to say this phrase sounds a little counterintuitive at first glance. Uh, can you explain what you mean by this? Sure. Well, we started this study because some people had been talking about a certain level of balance being in the in the prestige press uh, regarding the issue of global warming. And by that, they meant on one hand, you had uh, the climate change scientists from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also known as the IPCC. And on the other hand, you had the global warming skeptics, a few dozen uh, scholars and others who were who were trying to cast doubt. In fact, were casting doubt 
on whether humans were contributing to global warming. And so what we decided to do was to take that hypothesis, if you will, and to systematically test it by looking at articles that appeared in what we called the Prestige Press between 1988 and 2002. By Prestige Press, I mean the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the L.A. Times. What were you able to find? Basically, in that article, we uh, looked at these articles from 1988 to 2002. Uh, in, in total, we took a sample of 636 of them, a random sample. So we found that, in fact, once we went through all these articles and uh, we analyzed them, we found that about more than half of them gave roughly equal attention to the views that humans contribute to global warming and that climate change is exclusively the result of natural fluctuations, you see. So there was roughly a balance between those two views. Uh, then the second category was, was articles that emphasized the roles of humans uh, while presenting both sides of the debate. 35.3% um, emphasized that, in fact, the, that scientists and others really do believe that humans are contributing to global climate change. And we felt like this was, was really accurate coverage. And that's, that's really a positive point of this study, too. A lot of times people take it in the negative and that we're being very, very critical and there's all this undue balance. But actually, if you look at it, 35.3% uh, got it, we think, just right, at least according to what the IPCC says. Uh, then just to continue on, 6.2% of them emphasize the dubious nature of the claim that uh, anthropogenic global warming exists. And uh, on the other side, 5.8% contained exclusive coverage of human contributions. So you kind of have on each side um, the, about roughly 6% of the articles uh, that said that either it was all human-induced or uh, not at all. It was all natural. Well, what kind of language were these coders on the alert for here? Maybe you could give me some specific examples of, of the language you found in the newspapers that, that represented bias in the study from your view. Sure. I mean, let's just take a prototypical example. Um, let's say that the news peg, if you will, was that the IPCC just came out with a new report saying that uh, global uh, warming is at least in part caused by human activity. And then they'd say that in the front, the, the, uh, the uh, journalist would say that on the front end. And then it'd say, however, and then they would turn to uh, somebody, say, from the uh, Global Climate Coalition, let's say, which is a network of of automobile manufacturers and oil producers, many of whom have dropped out of this coalition recently, but they turn to the coalition and say, however, there's other scientists who say that this is in fact not real, and they point to people like uh, Richard Lindzen and, and others who are global climate change skeptics, and, and they would say, well, it's not quite as clear-cut as it seems, and so then they go from there. And if it was roughly equal attention given to both the NewsPeg IPCC report and uh, the subsequent rebuttal from the, the global climate change skeptics, well, then it was coded as balanced coverage. But a lot of what's really important, you asked about language. Well, how are the tags uh, put on who's talking? Do you just say uh, Frank Maizano, a global climate change expert? Or do you say Frank Maizano, director of strategic communications with the law firm of Bracewell Patterson and former spokesman of the industry-backed Global Climate Coalition? Do you see what I mean? The very tag that is applied was also important. And that's another reason why we decided to go with the uh, more painstaking article-by-article -article coding system. Now, it seems to me that any person well-schooled in science who looked at the sources here 
um, would not strike the ba- kind of balance that you found so prevalent in in the, what you call the prestige press. Mm-hmm. So I have to ask you, how much of this phenomenon do you think is a function of journalists being either ill-trained or uh, in a hurry or lazy? Well, I would say this. I mean, a lot of what you said is is absolutely relevant. I mean, part of this, the reason why this happens is because the journal, journalism is a very professionalized field. People go to school for this, and you're taught that you're supposed to tell both sides of the so- story, so to speak. So, I mean, on one hand, it's because of the professionalism of journalists. Um, also, you're right. I mean, there are spatial, uh, and like you only get so many column ish- inches. There's spatial dictates. There's organizational dictates. Like you have to make a deadline. And there is that the other part that you're talking about is that some people might not be all that well trained in science. Now, in the case of, of say, like the New York Times right now, they have a very uh, able person writing on global warming, Andrew Revkin. But uh, a lot of places aren't so fortunate. And what happens also, there's a political economic dimension to this that I think is really important. And that's that as the mass media conglomerate, uh, a lot of times investigative journalism gets dispensed with. A lot of times people are asked to become generalists, people who are formerly specialists, which is to say people are reporting on areas that they're not really all that well versed in. And so therefore the tendency is to tell both sides of the story because you want to cover it from as many angles as possible. And so basically by this study, we're hoping that we can begin a more in-depth interrogation of this notion of balance. Jules Boykoff is a visiting professor of politics at Whitman College in Washington State and co-author of the study Balance as Bias, Global Warming and the U.S. Prestige Press. Jules, thanks so much for taking this time with me today. Thanks for having me. Coming up, two journalists reveal how climate change has evolved as a story at two of the nation's top publications. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We've just heard from one of the authors of a recently published study that concludes for more than a decade the nation's top newspapers overrepresented the views of scientific skeptics when covering global warming. Here to talk with us now from the point of view of those covering this issue is Bill Allen, editor-in-chief of the National Geographic magazine, and Andy Revkin, environmental reporter for the New York Times, one of the papers cited in the study. Gentlemen, thanks for joining me today. Hi, Steve. Now, uh, I'm going to start uh, with you, Bill, even though um, the study didn't talk at all about how the National Geographic covers climate change, because your recent issue has, as a cover story, global warning, bulletins from a warmer world. And inside on the page, it says, from the editors, are pictures of some pretty upset penguins and a note from you that says that you expect to lose some readers from this. You say, quote, some readers will even terminate their memberships because some of them won't believe that global climate change is real and that humans contribute to the problem. Well, the uh, the issue's been out for a while, Bill. What happened with your readers? Well, we have, have indeed, Steve, received some of those cancellations of memberships, as I had anticipated, but we've also received far more letters of support and uh, appreciation. Tell us just for a moment what the readers told you, uh, those that bothered to write in to say that they wanted to cancel because of the story. Well, there were a few specifically, one from my native Texas that said, by presuming to know with certainty that the globe is still warming and at an accelerated rate and that such warming would be a bad thing and that we humans are the villains, you created a platform to preach from. So uh, they were accusing us of sort of preaching about this. And another one said, many of the so-called scientists you cite on the 
on the latter are no more than witch doctors throwing chicken bones on a dirt floor. Well, I'm not so sure about that one. And then uh, from California, they said since National Geographic has decided that there is, quote, no doubt that man's activities are the largest factor in causing global warming, we don't want to promote an organization which obviously has an agenda which runs counter to the best interests of the United States. So I I, uh, take these things very seriously, but I hasten to add to all of these people that what we're doing is, as Sergeant Friday did on the old Dragnet show, Just the Facts, Ma'am, we're taking a look at what the scientists have told us, thousands of scientists from around the world, and these are their conclusions. It's not necessarily what everyone wants to hear, but these are indeed the scientific facts. Andy, I don't want to put you in too much of a hot seat here. but Oh, I love it. But you kind of are. Yeah. I mean, the Boykoff study says that uh, the paper you write for now, the New York Times, um, one of the, quote, prestige press in this country, with plenty of money, plenty of science reporters, plenty of resources, in many cases really did not properly report the weight of the science here, gave far more credence to um, scientifically marginal skeptics than the facts would warrant. Why, why do you suppose that happened? Balance is a big impediment to effective communication of complex subjects, period. That's, that's a fact. Um, and it is also a, a bane of our existence in the journalistic community, especially in the, the, the daily news um, cycle where time is precious and, and reporters feel at the end of the day, if they have a story that gives you the news, gives you a sort of a he says, but she says structure, then the reporter goes home and says, I've done my job that day. And it's really a crutch, of course. Um, it doesn't advance the story in a meaningful way if you don't characterize the voices that are in the story. The other things that have been in play, of course, through the uh, 90s particularly, as industry fought the uh, prospect of the Kyoto Protocol, um, big money got spent on uh, disinformation campaigns where scientists were trained to talk to the media and put out there to definitely to sort of propagate the skeptical view. And more than a few people got suckered into that, I'm sure, over the years. Now, what do you think of this whole issue of balance, Bill, uh, when it comes to covering global warming? What we try and do is give a balance, as it were, of the scientific opinion. It's, It's one of those things that you don't have to say, well, let's see, on the one hand, people are saying that the Earth is round, but there are other people, 50% of the people are saying the Earth is flat. This is not quite that clear cut. However, I think what we need to do is just deal with these. This is the preponderance of the scientific evidence. And when you look at what the other side, the the non-global warming or the non-human influence side would be, it's very hard to find scientific evidence to support that. So we we just report what the scientific evidence is. Now, Bill, um, your in-depth article um, talks a lot about how, what you, the word you use, metrics, how if you look at how things are changing on the planet, it's really pretty clear that we are having an impact. But I don't find really much in the way of solutions here in your coverage. Why is that? Because we're try- we tried as much as possible to stay away from policy issues and prescriptions. What we wanted to do was just say, here is the evidence, here is the information. This is the time when that policymakers need to have this information out, and you as a consumer of information need to have this information as well. You know, Republicans, Democrats, Independents, and everybody else, we're all going to get warm. Now, how have newspaper editors... Um 
and folks that you've worked for responded to this story. Andy, how have yeah. things changed? Well, a few things have happened. The biggest, I think the biggest impediment to getting coverage to this hasn't been related to is it happening or not. It's, it's been the, the eye-glazing aspect of it. It's one of the classic incremental stories. And um, in my newsroom at the New York Times, if there's one word that's death to a story's prospects of getting significant uh, play or space in the paper, it's the word incremental. And I don't know about you guys, but, but global warming really is the ultimate incremental story. It's a century-scale story. And uh, newspapers are dealing with a day or an hour kind of scale and sometimes a year scale or the four-year electoral cycle. But to get them to think about something important on, uh, that may happen uh, three generations from now in, in terms of its full flowering is, is almost impossible. So that, that's there uh, constantly. Andy, at newspapers, of course, the typical gatekeeper is the editor that's just above the reporter and then that editor's editor. What difficulties have you had selling what you think are important aspects of the global climate change story? Well, uh, you know, the, the, one of the biggest is um, what a journalism professor of mine used to call the MIGO factor, the my eyes glaze over factor. <laughs> Plus, the, the, other, the other aspect of the MIGO factor is complexity. Uh, most, most newspaper editors know very little about science. And that's been established in surveys over the years that in quite a disturbing way. Uh, there was one 10 years or so ago, a, a poll of um, sort of a survey of scientific understanding of, uh, at the managing editor level of daily newspapers in America. And, and the, the numbers are really startling in terms of who, how many people think dinosaurs and humans lived at the same time, that kind of thing. Among editors. Among editors. Yeah, not reporters, of course. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so that's a huge impediment. And uh, then there's all the other constraints, just competition with the news that's always perceived as more urgent. And climate change is what we've been talking about, but is there, is there another area of science where the press is perhaps engaged in the same kind of, uh, well, really distortion of the yeah, subject? I, I do think so. Um, and not always at the, at the behest of industry. Uh, environmental groups have been very effective over the years, in some cases, of framing an issue and having the press just sort of reflexively framing it the same way. The, the one that's most current is mercury in fish. And I have yet to see, a, even in our own pages, a story on mercury and contamination in fish that doesn't immediately become a story on should power plant emissions of mercury be regulated, and if so, how. How well do you think the press has done covering global climate change? Well, I would have to say overall, you know, from my biased point of view, you know, I think these global flow issues are really important, uh, really badly. And again, for, for a thousand reasons um, that we've kind of gone over. It, it might be interesting to take a look at sort of the inverse. Over in Europe, the press has been much more kind of trumpeting the perils of global warming and um, pushing ahead in Kyoto, Kyoto, and, and um, all that stuff. And frankly, I think they're doing as poor a job, if not poorer, in doing that. They're there is some kind of conundrum in all of this, which is if you buy in. And actually, I was a little dismayed to see Time magazine a few years ago take an editorial stance in their news pages on global warming about the solutions. And when you take a stance and say, as Time did, global warming is happening, it could be disastrous, and uh, greenhouse gases need to be um, constrained now, uh, then you're sort of locked in and doing something that's different. And, and it gets to be, as in Europe, I think, problematic in a different way. Bill Allen, the lessons for journalists uh, over how we've covered global climate change? I think it comes down to two things, time and money. Mm -hmm. Time, 
read the scientific papers in the original. Talk talk to the scientists. And second, on the money, find out where the support is coming from, from the people that you're talking to. If they're, uh, if they're funded by someone who has a vested interest in it, I think you should keep a very skeptical eye on that. Um, ranking climate change as a story in the pantheon of all the news stories that's out there today, uh, where would you put it, uh, Bill Allen? I would still put it at the top of the stories because this is the kind of story that is, or kind of effect that is going to have a long-term impact on the entire planet, and all of us are going to have to live with it. We've already determined what kind of climate our children and grandchildren are going to be living in. We're now looking at what the grandchildren and great-great-grandchildren are going to be living in. Andy, uh, how has the press industry itself changed over time, and how do you think that affects how we cover such stories as global climate change? Well, I think a, a very simple measure of that is to look at what happened to CNN's coverage of the environment um, after it got sort of morphed into whatever that is, Time Warner, AOL, minus AOL. <laughs> I can't keep track. But it, but it all went away. Ted Turner went away and and climate change went away. So that just says right there what, what it's about. Bill, how important is it for the press to lead the public? Well, let me put it this way. The public can't ask for something it doesn't know about already. So sometimes you have to tell them something, that teach them something. Well, the history on a lot of these important issues is that there has been one voice or, or one small cadre that goes out and says, this is something that you really should listen to. And gradually more and more people may catch on to that. So I think, it's, I think the press can indeed lead this. You know, I, I still remember a third-rate burglary at, uh, at a building here in Washington that uh, eventually went on to something far more than that. And I think it's that kind of digging and dedication that is really going to be necessary if, if people are going to understand what's going on with this issue. Bill Allen is editor-in-chief of the National Geographic. Andy Revkin is the environmental, world environmental change reporter for the New York Times. Gentlemen, thank you both for taking this time. Pleasure. Thank you. Breathing in the air in some parts of Southern California is the same as living in a house with a frequent smoker, a group of researchers has found. Long-term exposure to such air pollution has been particularly harmful to hundreds of otherwise healthy adolescents in the Golden State who were monitored over the course of eight years as part of a groundbreaking study. During that time, chronic air pollution was found to reduce lung development and function significantly, according to the research team based at the University of Southern California. The New England Journal of Medicine published the results of the study in its current edition, and Arden Pope of Brigham Young University wrote an accompanying editorial that urges public health officials to take the findings of the study into consideration when drafting future policy. Professor Pope joins us now. Hello, sir. Hello. Now, there have been other studies that link air pollution to stunted lung development in children. How is this particular study so different? Well, b basically, this is really sort of the largest, most well-conducted study of its type. Uh, it, it, was a, it was conducted by a collaborative team of excellent researchers in Southern California. It prospectively followed up over 1,700 children in 12 communities in Southern California. And so it provides a reasonably robust confirmation that there are, in fact, cumulative adverse effects of long-term repeated exposures to air pollution and maybe more importantly, that these, uh, these effects occur over time, even in otherwise normal, healthy children. What's so important about its findings? 
Well, its findings are ex- extremely important in that uh, children that are exposed to higher levels of air pollution have lower lung function growth. So I- any, any parent or any child should be concerned if they live in an area that results in deficits in lung function growth in such a way that they don't reach their full potential. Can you just elaborate for us what, what's meant here by reduced lung function? Uh, what do these kids experience as a result of being exposed to this pollution over the long term? Well, what's what's happening here is that the children don't necessarily experience any sort of acute discomfort. They won't really even notice the impacts of this lung function or deficit in lung function growth because many of them wouldn't even know uh, what their full capacity or full lung function capacity would be had they not been exposed to the air pollution. But what this study tells us is that on average, these panels of children that are exposed to more air pollution have lower lung function and obtain lower lung function as they reach adulthood. Now, that's likely to, in the short term, affect their performance in, say, uh, endurance sports or whatever. But in addition to that, if this lung function influences them in la- later in life in terms of uh, risk of getting uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, other you know, bronchitic-related diseases, then it's likely to affect their lifestyle as they age. And deficits in lung function are also associated with increased risk of premature death. What do you think that uh, officials, uh, such as pollution regulators and and, and public health administrators, what should they be doing in the light of the findings of this study? That's a hard question because there have been substantial efforts to uh, try to control the air pollution in Southern California. And had they not been making these efforts, uh, given the increase in the number of cars, the number of miles being driven, the, the, the population concentrations that exist there, had these efforts not been made, uh, the air pollution in that area of California would be just horrendous. And in fact, the air quality has been improving somewhat in Southern California. But what these results suggest is uh, uh, we shouldn't sort of overstate the health effects, but we shouldn't understate them either. We should simply understand that air pollution of this type is ubiquitous. It's something that we are going to be exposed to in our communities, and to the extent that we can address this air pollution, we can improve our our public health. Arden Pope is a professor specializing in environmental epidemiology at Brigham Young University. Thanks for taking this time with me today. You're welcome. Good luck. Just ahead, the promises and perils of water power high in the Himalayas. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. Can hard science help to explain the mysteries of how and why we dream? In a study published this month in the Annals of Neurology, a pair of Swiss researchers point to a specific area of the brain as the likely place where our dreams originate. It's located deep in the back part of the brain called the inferior lingual gyrus. Recent research shows that this neighborhood of the brain is involved in the visual processing of faces and landmarks, as well as emotions and visual memories. The scientists in the latest study traced dream generation to this particular spot by mapping the brain of a 73-year-old woman who stopped dreaming a few days after she suffered a stroke. The woman's sight was also damaged by the stroke, including her ability to see in color. But within a few days, these visual problems cleared up, and she had no trouble recognizing familiar faces or describing familiar places. But her dream loss, which began around the same time her visual problems resolved, did not recover until months later. 
Throughout her four-week stay at the hospital, the scientists monitored the woman's sleep cycles. They found that her rapid eye movement, or REM sleep, the deep sleep state associated with dreaming, was normal. The woman remembered dreaming three to four times a week before her stroke, but couldn't recall any dream experiences afterwards, even when scientists woke her up from REM sleep. Researchers believe their observations support research that REM sleep and dreaming, while linked, may depend on independent generators. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu, and you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. Support for NPR comes from NPR stations and the Noyce Foundation, dedicated to improving math and science instruction from kindergarten through grade 12. Ford presenting the Escape Hybrid, whose full hybrid technology allows it to run on gas or electric power. Full hybrid technology details at FordVehicles.com. The Annenberg Fund for Excellence in Communications and Education. And the Kellogg Foundation, helping people help themselves by investing in individuals, their families, and their communities. On the web at wkkf.org. This is NPR National Public Radio. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Building new dams to generate electric power doesn't happen much these days in the U.S. Concern for migrating fish and the potential for damaging rivers seem to trump the need for electricity. But in the Kingdom of Nepal and the Himalayas, it's a different story. Waters from the highest mountains in the world feed some of South Asia's most powerful rivers. Rivers that can be dammed and their energy harnessed, and while environmental concerns and the high cost of construction have shelved plans for several large dams in recent years in Nepal, small-scale hydropower projects are flourishing. Locally managed dams in some Nepali villages are bringing electricity to remote areas and lighting up schools, Buddhist temples, even internet cafes. But with global climate change, even these small-scale dams face big environmental risks. Cheryl Colopy has our story. Nepal is the birthplace of the Buddha, and visitors praise the nation's culture and architecture as rich. Yet this is one of the poorest countries in the world. In terms of natural resources, it has one. From the whisper of little streams to the roar of rock-laden rivers full of glacial melt, this is the music of Nepal. Yet with some of the highest peaks in the world and all this water available to generate hydropower. Fewer than one in four Nepalis has access to electricity. Even here in the capital, Kathmandu, power can be intermittent. Arun Shrestha is an engineer with Nepal's Department of Hydrology and Meteorology. The electricity in his office has been going on and off all morning. We say water is our wealth, and uh, the dream of the nation is to, you know,、uh, somehow harness this wild running water, convert it to energy. And、uh, do whatever you want to do, you know. Shreshtha laughs as if to say, "If only it were that easy." In theory, there are up to a quarter of a million megawatts of potential hydropower in the Himalaya. That's enough to supply two Indias. But earthquakes, sediments, lack of roads, and many other challenges stand in the way of turning water into electricity. And most plans depend on neighboring Indias buying the megawatts at a high enough price to justify the effort. Several years ago, a coalition of environmentalists and economists defeated a major World Bank project. Since then, no large dams have moved past the planning stage. Former Water Minister Deepak Yawali was one of those opposed. He says big dams mean big debt. The issue is risk. Is it a large risk or a small risk, and who's bearing it? 
And for the person or the community bearing it, even a, a so-called small project might be a very large risk. Kewali does see a future for smaller Nepali finance projects like several recently completed ones that are now feeding the grid. He's one of a group of well-traveled and highly educated water specialists in Nepal who are seeking technological progress that's closely tied to social benefit. And don't give us this pie-in-the-sky kind of argument that, oh, you build this huge project and suddenly, you know, you can export all the electricity and uh, get a lot of money and then build your schools and hospitals and all that, huh? Now, if Nepal had 6 to $10 billion, would it build this 10,000 megawatt monster or invest in, you know, 200 other things needed in development? Over at the offices of Nepal Electricity Authority, Managing Director Janak Lal Karmacharya sees it differently. He's championed some of the large hydro projects, and he still hopes they'll happen. After all, the melting snows are still there. Demand and financing could still come together, he says. The water ahead is always available. It's a question of when it should be developed. That means when the market is ready to take the, that sort of energy, that quantum energy. So, you know, everything is decided through the market, not philosophy. The debate continues, and large dams may someday be built in Nepal. But meanwhile, far from the capital, an array of medium, mini, and micro-hydro is serving other cities and even many of the remote villages in Nepal. In the dining room at the Panorama View Lodge in the popular tourist crossroads of Namche Bazaar, an international clientele enjoys bright lights, hot water, and flush toilets thanks to hydropower. At 11,500 feet, Namche is where trekkers must spend a couple of days to get used to the thinning air before proceeding higher. Adventuresome tourists discovered this region, known as the Kumbu, in the 1970s. Guesthouses sprang up. Soon the wooded hillsides around Namche were denuded for building and fuel. Local Sherpa people and their western friends sought an alternative fuel, fearing there would be no forests left. Sherop Jangbu Sherpa is the owner of the Panorama View. For the past 10 years, he's used electricity from one of the highest hydropower plants in the world. When we started the lodge, we used to bake the cakes in the pan, and we maybe it used, we used almost 20 kilos or 30 kilos of wood just to bake a cake. And now it hardly costs about maybe 13 or 14 rupees with the electric it doesn't cost anything, and it is much easier. So every, the electricity made life very good. Sherrop points out all the appliances electricity allows him to use to keep tourists happy. Yeah, we couldn't have refrigerator, microwave, the oven, the toaster, egg cooker, the boiler... For washing dishes? For washing dishes. And also we got another boiler up there for shower and also TV. <laughs> in Sherop's office, there's a computer with Internet access. Sherop writes to his son, who's studying in Colorado. This family is typical of the prosperous merchants of Namche. What's more, respiratory health has improved because there's less wood smoke. Children now watch TV, but they can also do schoolwork at night. And the Sherpa, who are Buddhist, can afford to support local monasteries where young monks learn to chant Buddhist prayers.
A dozen yaks lumber across a narrow bridge swinging gently over a river canyon in the Kumbu. Herders urge them on with whistles and shouts. Travel in these rugged mountains is still what it has been for centuries. Porters and yaks carried salt down from Tibet and grains up from the low valleys. Now, it's just as likely to be beer, Cokes, instant noodles, and candy on the backs of porters. Several hours walk up from Namche, two 300-kilowatt turbines hum. These are the source of the bright lights and chocolate cakes in this part of the Kumbu. The turbines arrived here in the early 90s the fast way, by helicopter. Concrete and cables came the hard way, carried 10 days from the nearest road. The plant is known as the Tame Hydropower Project for the nearby village of the same name. Tame was once the home of Tenzing Norgay, who first reached the summit of Everest with Edmund Hillary. A little further uphill, we find the source of the power plant's water, diverted from a small river and channeled down via a brick conduit. The air is cold. The contours of the rocky hillsides blur in the morning mist. My name is Mingmer Sherpa. I am uh, working in uh, Kumbu Bijili Company, and I am a technician. Tell me where we are right now and what this is. Uh, we are right now in... Uh, Intake, which is water devoured to the storage tank. Mingma Rita Sherpa is a lodge owner in Tame, and he also troubleshoots electric problems for his village. He points out a gate he can close when the river runs heavy with monsoon silt. The Himalaya are young mountains that shed massive loads of sediments. That's one of the arguments against dams in the high mountains. Their reservoirs can fill quickly with silt. Mingma Rita says during the monsoon, they power the turbines with spring water. In the Sherpa village of Tamo, villagers now have monthly electric bills, and they pay them at the offices of Kumbu Bijuli. Bijuli means electricity in Nepali. Every home here has lights. Kumbu Bijuli has a unique fee structure. Small homes pay a low fixed amount each month, about a dollar. Homes with more appliances pay ten dollars. Kumbu Bijuli has wired each home so that during the peak hours when lodges are serving meals, power to homes can be cut if necessary. But lighting is wired separately. That way, in keeping with Sherpa community values, kids can always study. Big users like lodges, bakeries, and cyber cafes pay a much higher rate, and they have meters. This payment structure will keep the project solvent as long as the tourists keep coming. Ang Danu Sherpa is the general manager of Kumbu Bijuli. So our biggest challenge is to sustain or to have enough money, for, especially for repair and maintenance. If the tourism business stops here, then we have to really struggle <laughs> to sustain the company. The Tame hydropower plant was a gift from the Austrian government. The Austrian aid organization Echo Himal trained Sherpa engineers to maintain the plant. Four years ago, Echo Himal insisted the Nepali government completely turn the plant over to the Sherpa. Dr. Martin Oitz, founder of Echo Himal, helped create Kumbu Bijuli's management structure. Now, obviously, a small hydro station in a remote area uh, will be much more sustainable if the local people own it. 
if the local people have the feeling they have to call someone in Kathmandu uh, who might come after another three months and look what is the problem, it will never be sustainable. But the local people there, they have the feeling we are all co-owners and that has helped a lot uh, to make it really sustainable. Oit says the project is unique in another way that he's particularly proud of. The wiring is all underground in the villages to protect the incomparable mountain views. This is not true in other hill areas of Nepal with hydro. Sedimentation and earthquakes aren't the only hazards for hydropower in the Himalaya. In recent years, melting glaciers have posed new problems. In fact, the hydropower plant that serves the Kumbu was supposed to be built not on a small side river, but on a major tributary of the powerful Dudkosi, or Milk River. So named for the huge loads of sediment the river transports, turning its icy waters creamy. Plant manager Ang Danu says in 1985, the partially built plant was wiped out when a glacial lake upriver called Dig Show burst and flooded the valley below. Twenty people died in the Dig Show flood, which also washed away homes, bridges and trails, along with the partially constructed hydropower plant. All the main rivers in Kumbu, you know, which has a glacial source, I think they are all dangerous, They're exposed to outburst because of the glo- global warming. Ang Danu says he's watched the glaciers in the upper Kumbu shrink over the years, as scientists say glaciers throughout the world are doing. Melting glaciers leave behind lakes with unstable natural dams. If they break, they suddenly release vast amounts of water. Arun Shreshtha of Nepal's Department of Hydrology and Meteorology says the bursting of Dig Show was the event that put Nepali hydrologists on notice there was something unusual going on in these mountains. Shreshtha says sudden floods from glacial lakes are growing more frequent. The phenomenon is known as a glacial lake outburst flood. Most of the 15 outburst floods on record happened in the past 20 years, and Shreshtha attributes that to global warming. According to whatever we have observed from maps, from uh, field studies, or from imageries, uh, there are about uh, 20, over 20, slightly over 20 lakes in Nepal that are likely to burst in the future. Or these lakes need attention, very close attention in the future. I wanted to catch a glimpse of one of the glacial lakes hydrologists are worried about. Most are so hard to reach, scientists have observed them only through satellite photos. After a morning's walk up one of the valleys near Everest, my guide and I tackled a hill called Chukung Ri. From the top, we were told, we could get a good view of Imja Lake. Two hours later, at about 17,000 feet, and with the stinging wind blowing, I called it quits. But we were high enough to see in the distance a long lozenge of gray-green water lying in the shadow of a popular climbing mountain known as Island Peak. Emja Lake is about a mile long. An outburst flood here would inundate a string of villages below. So far, there's been little study of such lakes here in Nepal. In addition to the nation's endemic poverty, it's been beleaguered by a Maoist insurgency for years. And glacial lakes are just one aspect of the complicated water dynamic in this region. South Asia's enormous population is growing. Arid India will need Nepal's water, and likely its hydropower too. Many water problems will have to be solved here in the land of the Buddha, for they ripple from Nepal to India, Bangladesh, and beyond. For Living on Earth, I'm Cheryl Kalapi.
hear our program anytime on our website. The address is livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is 20 Holland Street, Somerville, Massachusetts, 02144. And you can call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. CDs, tapes, and transcripts are Next week on Living on Earth, California will soon be the first state to require automakers to address global warming from carbon dioxide. It's the latest in a long line of anti-pollution measures by the state's Air Resources Board that have set trends nationwide. I think we've been pretty successful at getting our message out. Air pollution hurts people. Air pollution kills people. The California Crusade Against Pollution, next time on Living on Earth. And remember, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We take you now to the land that lies just below the Himalayan mountains. Hildegard Vesterkamp collected these sounds that reflect the busy pace of urban life in some of India's biggest cities. is produced for the World Media Foundation by Chris Ballman, Christopher Bolick, Eileen Belinsky, Jennifer Chu, Ingrid Lobet, and Susan Shepard, with help from Carl Lindemann and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Jenny Cecil Moore, Jen Goodman, and Steve Gregory. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Our technical director is Paul Wabrek. Allison Dean composed our themes. Al Avery runs our website. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Environmental sound art, courtesy of Earthy. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and more. Women of Inspiration speak at the Stonyfield Strong Women programs taking place in Boston, New York, and Washington, D.C. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from NPR member stations, the Ford Foundation for reporting on U.S. environment and development issues, and the Wellborn Ecology Fund. This is NPR, National Public Radio.